This is a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. What's the matter, Mr. Rowland? You're jumpy tonight. Mr. Rowland glanced over his shoulder toward the windows and the night pressing its ominous thoughts against the barred glass. What's out there, then? You expecting something? G-ghosts, Mr. Rowland said. There's no such thing as ghosts, Mr. Rowland. Mr. Rowland reached for a new puzzle piece. Tell that to Mr. Green. You just heard narrator and one of Audiophile Magazine's recently named Golden Voices, January Lavoie. She was reading an excerpt from Before the Devil Breaks You, book three in the Diviners series by Libba Bray. I listen to audiobooks, and like every listener, I have my favorite narrators. And as the host of this podcast, I actually get to speak to them, which thrills me no end. January Lavoie is at the top of my list. I've heard her narrate fiction, memoirs, history, mysteries, and more. When I don't know an author's work, but January is the narrator, I'll listen, because I know she knows how to draw people into the story. I fell into Libba Bray's wonderful Diviners series, for example, because January was the narrator. And now Libba has a new fan. I was delighted to hear that January Lavoie had recently been named a golden voice by Audiophile Magazine, which means, quite simply, she's recognized as the best of the best. And when I had the chance to speak with her a few months ago, I was, as you will hear, over the moon. You're amazing. Oh, I, I told you I was going to go full-out fangirl on you, and I really am, and I'm going to try not to. But <laughs> don't, don't hold back on my account. <laughs> How did you get started in audiobooks? You've, you've acted on stage and TV, films. How audiobooks? It was actually through my stage work. I was doing an August Wilson play at the Signature Theater. I think it was 2007. And there were two other actors in the show who had the same voiceover agent. And I didn't have a, a commercial agent. I didn't have voiceover representation. I had never done it. And so when these agents came to see the show, we all went out for drinks afterwards, and I hit it off with them, and one of them in particular, the amazing Sherry Hoffman, who represents lots and lots of narrators and wonderful voice actors. So I started doing commercial voiceover through them, and it was about at least a year, maybe two, into my time with them that the first audiobook audition came along, and I had never listened to an audiobook. I mean, other than the sort of picture book, read-along children's stuff, I had never listened to a book on tape as an adult. And so Sherry called me, and she said, we have this audition for an audiobook. Are you interested? And I said, does it pay actual money? Is that a thing? <laughs> she said, yes. And I said, sure. And the rest, as they say, is history. So what was that transition like, moving from theater or television where there's a cast, where there's a crew, to being by yourself with microphone and pages. I love books. I started reading at a very young age. I never without a book of some sort. So I don't think I thought of it as a performer transition so much as I thought of it as an extension of the reader in me and being able to take the, the sort of organic person who is happiest with a book and bring it into a different environment. So when I first started narrating, I was very concerned with 
technical proficiency and I was very nervous about getting it wrong. And then after a while, I think I sort of was able to relax into the mindset of if I'm enjoying it, then chances are the listener is going to enjoy it. So that's, in a sense, my larger philosophy about it. And that is performative in a sense, but I don't approach it sort of in, the, in a kind of product-oriented way. I approach it in an experiential kind of way, I guess. You are a master at characterization. I feel like I'm listening to truly 20 people, 20 different actors, a multicast production, and I, I always come back to, oh, wait, wait, no, it's one person. It's one person. <laughs> I'm so glad that's, that's the experience because I, I really enjoy doing that work. How do, you, how do you develop those characters? Whenever I'm talking about characters, I tend to start with the discussion about the diviners because Libba Bray, who wrote those books, has many gifts. She's an extraordinary prose writer. She is an extraordinary researcher. But one of her greatest gifts, in my opinion, is her characterizations. And she uses language in such a way that you know who the person is by how they speak, the words they choose, the slang they use, the rhythm and cadence is built into the dialogue. It's 1926. Who believes in haunts and hobgoblins when there are motor cars and aeroplanes and the cotton club and men like Jake Marlowe making America first through industry? Don't tell me you're scared, George smirks. He has a cruel mouth. It makes him all the more desirable. Scared of what? That we'll run out of gin, the boy in the fez jokes, and everyone laughs. George whispers low in her ear. I'll keep you safe. His hand is on her back. Oh, surely this is the most glorious night in existence. She taught me who those characters were. I recognized them the first time. I had to audition for the first Diviner's book, and uh, David Rapkin and Dan Zitt had the whole thing set up where we all had to read chapters from six different characters' perspectives. And I'd never seen the book before, but here I was sitting at Random House reading these pages and going, well, I know who this is. I know who this is. Oh, I hear her. So I suppose there's some overlap and affinity perhaps for the things that Libba and I enjoy, and that's what makes us a good match in that regard. But also it's, it's the way that she does that. And to be perfectly honest, I think I'm close to a couple hundred titles at this point. There are so many characters that I've met that I can resurrect some of them and put them in different books. And, and that's kind of a fun thing, too, sort of mixing and matching. But mostly, especially for contemporary work, I just cast the book from people I know. And so I don't have to create so much as I can just inhabit a person. I mean, my UPS delivery man has this fantastic voice, and he's in so many of my books. He doesn't know that, but he is. And, you know, I find sort of inspiration and, and, and meet people and go, oh, that's a great, I have to remember what that sounded like. How is it for you when when the character is a man? Because you don't do that, but at the same time, it's very clear that it's a man who's speaking. Yeah. I think it was Kevin Thompson, who's a wonderful director who I work with a lot, who I did those, my first few books with. And he sort of set me free of any uh, feeling like I had to fake or convince anyone. He's like, look, you know, 
nobody thinks you're stepping out of the booth and someone else is stepping in to do this man voice, you know. It's your job to give me a sense of it, to indicate it. And I do have a lower register for a, a woman, so I, I have some depth and facility in the lower range. But for me, it's it's a it's a matter of placement and physicality. I think that my male characters tend to sit differently, move differently, their shoulders maybe sit differently, and all of that. Every little physical change that you make, and you can only make little ones, of course, in front of the microphone because it's so sensitive, but every little physical change changes the sound. It changes the instrument, so it changes what you hear. So I do rely a lot on, on my own physicality to be able to manipulate the sound that way, too. Do you try to speak to living authors before you do the book to get a sense of characterization or pronunciation or whatever? When I need to, um, Twitter's a great sort of gateway for that kind of thing. It's very tricky, and I, I, this is from my experience as a stage actor. I've worked with playwrights, developed new work with playwrights, and I've also done many plays from Shakespeare and Greek plays and whatever where the playwright is, is long gone. And I think that there's an interesting thing that happens to a performer. When you know you can ask the playwright questions, it can make you a little bit lazy, I think. It can cause you to rely on just making a list of questions and expecting someone to answer them for you. For me, I find that the creativity of problem-solving a thing you don't understand in a play or in an audiobook can really deepen and richen the experience for the person consuming the performance. Because when you challenge yourself to have to find a way into something, it's like they say that teaching someone something makes you learn it better. It's similar to that. So the, the harder I have to work on my own to sort of excavate the answer, I think that deepens and connects me in a better way to the work. If I'm really stumped, and especially for pronunciations, because we always want to honor what the writer's intention was, often either I will, but usually my director or producer will reach out to the author um, and get us an approved pronunciation list. But in terms of other questions pertaining to character or, or personal history, I try very hard to solve my own problems. And it's also, I think, it's an interpretive art, narrating. And again, like what I do in the theater, it's a gift when someone writes something, crafts something extraordinary out of language and ideas, and gives it to you as a performer and says, here, now you add your part, you add your perspective. I've said before that I think that a narrator is like a lens, so you should see right through me, but my function can be to sharpen or to somehow affect the perspective. But I'm not here to change the image. I'm not here to create the image. I'm, I'm shaping it. So I try to be judicious and gentle with contact with authors. But again, as such a dorky fan of books, it's like the idea that I can get in touch with these people is just amazing. And occasionally, you know, they'll tweet at me and say that they appreciate my work. And that's just the best. What about with memoir? It's intimate. It's so tricky sometimes. That's a great question. I did with Felicia Rashad. We co-narrated Coretta Scott King's memoir. And I think for me, it was a particularly fraught time for me politically and personally. And I found such solace in hearing her bravery and her words and her story and parts of the story that I had never known, intimate parts of the story of, of her life and raising her children in such a dangerous environment. And so 
especially with someone iconic. They belong to everyone. Everyone has their own relationship to that person. Everyone has their own idea of that person. So again, I feel like my job is to clarify, but also get out of the way. In, in a way, when I do memoir, it's sort of the most I'm myself, because I'm just another person who happens to be the person who's telling you this information about this famous person or this figure. So I try to be in the most neutral, respectful, and articulate version of January, which is very different than the kind of perspective narration that I do in, uh, in fiction. Let's hear January read a little of Coretta Scott King's memoir. This scene takes place when Coretta Scott was an undergraduate at Antioch College and dating a white student. Walt got out of the car to place a phone call to his parents, asking them to meet us at a certain restaurant in town. When he got back in the car, I had one question. What about me? He paused, searching for words. It had not even dawned on him that I would not be allowed to eat at the restaurant he'd selected. When his parents arrived, we ate somewhere else, but the experience depressed me and marred the weekend. It gave us a powerful glimpse of what an interracial marriage would be like and the challenges we'd face if we stayed together. One of us would be welcome somewhere. The other would not be. What about for something like John Grisham, for example, you did Camino Island, mm -hmm. with pacing and with tension, uh, especially with a book like that, that had disparate plots that somehow came together. <laughs> yes, yes, it did. I'll say no more. But how do you deal with pacing and, and creating tension in, in a mystery like that? I'd really try, again, to sort of let the author dictate and drive. It can be seductive to feel that it's my purview to choose those things. But when I'm reading a book the first time, when I'm prepping a book, I try to really imprint on myself when I was turning pages faster, when my heart started racing a little bit. You know, at night, I finished a chapter, but I had to go. I had to turn the page and start the next chapter because I couldn't let it go. So for me, the pacing of a book is often dictated by the experience I had consuming the book rather than sort of stepping back from it and saying, oh, you know, this is this type of scene. This is an action scene, so it goes fast because sometimes... Oddly, counterintuitively, action scenes I find need to be slowed down because there's a density of information that you don't want the listener to miss. So it's not like, you know, a car chase scene in a film where you're, you know, cut, 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 cut. It requires more placement, more careful articulation so that you can stay with me at the pace of thought, but not necessarily at the pace of a visual experience that you'd be having in a different medium. How many times do you typically read the book? Do you, once? Once. Once. One time. Sometimes I'll have the luxury of having a little bit more time. I'm blessedly, and so I'm also always, you know, recording something and prepping something else in the evening. And so I'm, I'm trying just to get the best holistic sense of the book when I'm prepping it. I, I don't do a lot of marking because I'm very visual. And again, going back to my stage work and, and training, I want to be able to surprise myself. And I, I had a wonderful acting teacher in grad school who said, you know, being a good actor is going all the way out on the thinnest of ice 
and hoping that it breaks. And I didn't understand what that meant when I was a young actor in school. It just sounded terrifying and strange and dumb. (laughs) Um, And now, um, having had some wonderful experiences both in the theater and as a narrator, I understand what he meant because you have to be free enough with your instrument and confident enough in your own human impulses that they're going to lead you to an interesting or good or very surprising place that maybe I had an idea about the way this part of the book should be. You know, when I'm reading a book at home and prepping it, there's no audience. But even being in a booth, even if it's just me and one other person, I'm performing for the microphone and for the person who's listening. And that is the performance that then gets extended out to the rest of the world when someone's listening. And I'm a performer. I'm a creature of performance. So when I have one person listening to me, it's activated in a totally different way and I have access to different impulses. So the idea that I have sitting in bed reading the book and marking it down, that might not be the best idea. It might not be the most interesting. So I have to leave the space to be surprised. Are you able to read for pleasure now? It's such a funny question. People ask it all the time. I am and I do a lot. And oddly, I think it it makes me want to read more because, you know, having a, a toe in the publishing world, anytime I'm at a publishing house, I'm just seeing more and more stacks of books and and galleys and posters, and it's like, oh, more books. I haven't read that one yet. Oh, what's that one about? I don't. I hadn't heard of it. You know. So, yes, I do. I I still I still do. <laughs> Has narrating changed your idea of storytelling? When you say storytelling, do you mean the way I tell a story, or do you mean storytelling as a as a function of civilization, like what we do as storytellers? I think I mean both. Okay. I think I can speak to the second one first, that I have become so enamored by the human need to storytell in a way that I was not aware of before I was a narrator. I have been so lucky to meet and talk to people who consume the work that we do in this industry with such passion and joy. And as a reader, because this is funny, I don't listen to audiobooks much because I'm a visual learner. And that's why I'm, I think, part of why I'm good at the job because I consume information well through my eyes, not as well through my ears. I do listen to audiobooks. I listen to, you know, some that my friends narrate, or or especially, um, like, memoirs. Like, I loved Trevor Noah's. I I love listening to people tell their own story. But that's just not the way that I consume stories. And when I meet people who consume audiobooks, they're such a deep joy. And it is a shared experience. I don't know who I'm narrating for specifically when I'm narrating, But when someone consumes it and feels that it's just for them, which I've been told many times, that is the best feeling. And there is a sort of communion. It is, it's like theater, it's like church. It's very primal, I think, our need to tell stories and our desire to hear stories. So it has definitely changed my understanding of the human need for stories. Um, In terms of my own personal work, I think I take it much more seriously. I think that You know, there's a way in which we minimize storytelling, you know, story time, like it's a thing for children. And it's a great thing. And my mother read to me, you know, I demanded to be read to until I could read myself. But it's something that we as human beings do our whole lives. And it's it's so important that we are able to tell our stories 
so many people don't get to tell their own story. And so I really love, I just love being a part of, of this world and this industry. And I really believe that if you think about what separates humans and animals, it's storytelling. Mm -hmm. We tell stories. Mm -hmm. We found out chimps use tools. Mm -hmm. So, so much for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We lost that. We lost that. But Mm -hmm. I I do think it is storytelling. When you return to the stage, for example, like with Alliance Theater, what is that adjustment like because we're here and here's the microphone Mm -hmm. to... Hello there. <laughs> Hi, Balcony. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I do think that I have, I, I, my set point now is much more intimate. Before I became a narrator and when I was mostly doing theater, it was a larger presence that I sort of lived inside of more frequently. And I'm still doing a lot of plays, but I do find even at, you know, the first table read of a read through, I, I have to remind myself to sort of recalibrate to a bigger voice. And <laughs> there are lots of things that I'll do when I'm rehearsing a play that I'll realize I'm, I'm being very careful and not popping my peas because, you know, and it's like, actually, you have to do that if you want the back row or the balcony to be able to hear you say that word. So there are some, some sort of mechanical, physical things that don't translate between the two that I have to adjust. But, and I, I make this joke a lot, and I have to be very careful to make sure people know it's a joke. But I often say that, you know, being a narrator is like doing a play where everybody finally says their lines right because it's me saying them all. Um, that's very glib, and I mean that as a joke. But when you're in the mindset of making the whole story yourself or interpreting the whole story yourself, and then you go into a room with an ensemble, I find I do have to be much more respectful of the way that other people, not what they do with their own work, but with how we interface with each other. Because I am used to having a measure of control in, in narrating a book that is not that is not the way it is in the theater. Right, exactly. And I would imagine that, it, that it's both challenging but also joyful both. Absolutely. That you actually do get to interact with somebody yes. else and the energy that can happen from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's definitely expanded, I think, my appreciation of both sides of that creative process. I also find it really interesting that... On one hand, as a narrator, the tools you have are limited. Yeah. It's your voice. Definitely. But the range of characters you get to play is way expanded. The range is expanded. And, of course, we're having a lot of conversations now about diversity, as we should be. And for me, I became a professional performer at a time when people were sort of aware that there was a lack of representation and they knew they needed to do better, but they weren't really doing it yet. And, you know, a lot of us joke about getting to New York and, oh, how many prostitutes have you played on Law & Order? You know, because that's sort of what was available at the time. So as we've been baby-stepping our way through in, in many industries toward parity and diversity, I sort of got this gift of being able to do this thing where I'm every. I mean, I've played inanimate objects. I've played aliens. I've played ghosts and and men and women and children and people from all sorts of countries. And it's incredibly freeing. And it definitely makes me a better actor because I'm much more fearless about trying something. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, we'll, we'll tweak it. We'll make it different. And also, 
I make faces in the booth that I would never be able to make on stage or in front of a camera. It would be horrifying. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can really just contort yourself into this whole other creature. And since no one has to look at your face or what you're doing, it's, it's, it's very, very freeing. You don't have to look like anything. You can be, you can be anything you can make with sound. And that's infinite. What draws you to a, a book? Does it tend to be plot or character or language? Oh, I'm glad you said language. Language is a great way to put it. I love a great turn of phrase. I love when you know that someone is very, very smart and could use many, many more words than than they do in the book, but they, they work in economy. I, I've been lucky enough to work with one of our United States Poet Laureate's Natasha Trethewey. And that and, was at Alliance Theatre. Yeah, it started at Alliance. We've done the show, the play, the piece of theatre is called Native Guard, which is the name of the poetry book. It's not a collection. It's actually a book. It's It has an, an arc that she wrote in, I believe she published it in 06, won the Pulitzer in 07, and then she was she was the Poet Laureate for the state of Mississippi, where she's from, and then she was named U.S. Poet Laureate, I believe, in 2013, 12 or 13. I learned so much about economy of language from her. You know, a single page, a hundred, 150, 200 words, an entire story, a life, an event. Let's hear January in an excerpt of L.A. Theatre Works' production of Native Guard, which is written by Natasha Threthaway. The road I walked home from school was dense with trees and shadow, creekside, and lit by yellow daffodils. Early blossoms, bright against winter's last gray days. I must have known they grew wild, thought no harm in taking them. So I did, gathering up as many as I could hold, then presenting them in a jar to my mother. She put them on the sill and I sat nearby, watching light bend through the glass, day easing into evening, proud of myself, for giving my mother some small thing. She's, of course, a master, but many writers are quiet masters, particularly fiction writers. They can conjure this world, and there'll be this turn of phrase that will just stop you in your tracks, and you have to keep going. You have to keep going. You have to push through it. But it's just seeing these little sort of everyday flares of brilliance in the language that people choose and use and wield you know, as this sort of magical wand that can transport us all, the reader, the narrator, the listener. Yeah, it's language. Love language. Thank you for saying that. Is there anything that's difficult for you to narrate because of the quality of writing, perhaps? And obviously, no naming names. You don't have to. But <laughs> Or just because of the content, you know, something that's very violent, for example. Mm. Yeah. I will cite one example. I do uh, the Women's Murder Club series by James Patterson. And they're really well-written, and it's four wonderful, strong, amazing female characters. But because it is <laughs> the Women's Murder Club, there is a lot of violence. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard because obviously I support and promote these books because they are strong female protagonists, and, and they're, they're great. And, you know, they're... You know, James Patterson would be the first to tell you in an interview he's not changing the world with these these books. He's he's trying to give people diversion, entertainment. But sometimes the violence does feel challenging 
you know, when you're when you've done a series, I feel like I think I've done seven or eight of them now. That's a lot of murder. <laughs> and something about, I think, the quality of my voice, I do tend to get a lot of mystery, suspense, murder books. Well, even the diviners. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not for me to have a breakdown while I'm describing a violent scene or a scene about, you know, racism or misogyny or any of the things that, you know, wonderful authors deal with for us all the time. But it's a very challenging for me to put enough of myself into it that it's confident and truthful and real and accessible to the listener, but hold back enough of myself that I don't get so involved that my personal emotions overshadow the intention of the words. It's interesting because I think when we read, when I read, I'll own this, I can draw myself away from the page if I'm reading something that depicts violence, which I have a very hard time with. And so I can just be scanning it so I have a sense of what's going on. Mm -hmm. You can't do that when somebody is telling it to you. No, and I can't do it as the narrator. And especially you can't yeah. do it as the narrator. Yeah. I, I, that's an interesting experience because I do think sometimes when I'm prepping a book and there's extreme violence, say, I will gloss over it a bit and I won't really experience it until I'm doing the performance in the booth. And that, that it sometimes takes me by surprise, the depth of what I'm saying and what I'm feeling. And there is also something different about speaking something into existence. Reading it on the page, reading an act of violence on the page is one experience. But when I am putting the words into the world, forming them, saying what happened, how, where, what it felt like, giving it that vibration of sound, it's physicalizing it in a way. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. If you had to sum up the attributes of a good narrator if, as advice for somebody who might be interested in this, what would you say? You know, I do some coaching, and I I try to tell people there's a baseline physical, mechanical requirement that is a good eye-brain-mouth connection. And that is the athletic part of doing audiobooks. Yes, we have to be good storytellers. We have to have empathy, emotion, understand things like pacing. And, you know, if we're good at accents, that helps, and all those different things. But the most basic thing is an eye-brain-mouth connection. You have to be able to see it on the page, quickly process it through your mind, and make it come out your mouth the way it's written. And that's the feedback loop. You know, that's the sort of, that's the, the mechanical, technical requirement. It's, it's interesting how many people want to pursue a career as narrators but really have trouble with that part. And I understand how frustrating that, that would be. You know, I've always wanted to be a dancer. But my feet just don't listen to my brain. <laughs> they don't listen. I took dance lessons as a kid. And, you know, sometimes I'll get cast in a play and people say, do you dance? And I say, well, I move well. Um, because that's the term for actors who can sometimes trip over their own feet. But have a measure of grace and some training. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I'm never going to be a dancer because that's just not my physical inclination. And so I do try to try to make sure that that's a thing. And I, there was a great article by another audiobook narrator and his name is escaping me right now. But he said something about when people tell me that they want to narrate, I say, go and sit alone for an hour and read out loud and then come back and tell me if you still want to be a narrator. And I'd never thought of putting it that way, but that I think is a wonderful way of describing it. Because if you still like books after sitting alone for an hour and reading out loud, then you might be able to do this as a job. Because, you know, we do seven, eight-hour sessions, day after day after day. 
And you have to love that part. You have to love you have to love the reading first and foremost. January, thank you. And thank you for the hours and hours and hours you have given me. Oh, you are so welcome. I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. That was narrator and audiophile magazine Golden Voice, January Lavoie. You can check out reviews for January's books at audiophilemagazine.com. And subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get a daily recommendation for some of the best listening out there in a four-minute dose because we know you're busy. Once a month, an extended edition featuring an interview with a narrator, a writer, a producer, sometimes all three, always about audiobooks. I'm Joe Reed. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic. Good listening.